This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I am once again honored to be representing my friends at New Society Publishers, the book publishers that were a big inspiration to me even before I started working with ecologies and natural buildings and way before podcasting. Their titles like The Natural Plaster Book and Timber Framing for the Rest of Us really made me believe that I could build my own home, which I eventually did. And later volumes like Ecopreneuring, Unlearn Rewild, and Building Community have offered tons of inspiration and even helped to shape my worldview. Whether you're looking for practical tips on growing and preserving food, exploring complex challenges in your own life, or sometimes just searching for hope and inspiration in a crazy world where you don't feel like you fit in, you'll find exactly what you're looking for and more at newsociety.com. Hey, welcome everybody to the eighth of the monthly expert panel discussions. Now, as I mentioned before, each month I'll be hosting discussions and debates between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration, land management, and more. Now, in this session, I hosted a discussion on how to make and analyze high-quality compost with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, a nonprofit organization working to advance regenerative agriculture in Europe. In this panel, I invited three of the most experienced and influential educators in the field of compost production and biological soil amendments. This is an area where there is a lot of contention, as you'll see in any online forum on this topic. Differences in opinion about bacterial or fungal dominant compost, hot thermophilic decomposition or cooler and slower techniques, whether compost teas actually work or if prebiotic food is more important. This is a new and emerging field, so there is a lot of new discoveries all the time. But rather than get bogged down in technicalities, I organize this panel to cut through the confusion and talk about what really works and results in improvement of soil health for growers. Now one mistake that I have to own up to is that I screwed up a bit in the scheduling coordination with the speakers, and for that reason Charles Dowding and Adrian Goldstack didn't show up until the end. Uh, we'll get to hear a bit from Charles in the last 15 minutes, but Adrian only comes in during the Q&A portion, which isn't part of this episode. Don't worry though, I have plans to do follow-up interviews with them both, so we'll hear from them in some of the episodes coming up. But luckily, Troy Hinkey of Living Roots Compost Tea was a real hero and carried the discussion and all of the questions that I had along the way. So don't forget, if you want to see the video of the full event, you can check it out on the Climate Farmers YouTube channel through the link in the show notes for this episode. Now since these discussions are longer than regular weekly episodes, I'll keep the intro short and jump right into the introductions for our panelists. Troy began his career with soils and compost at the Rodale Institute in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, serving as Rodale's compost specialist. Troy worked side by side with Dr. Elaine Ingham, who's also been on this panel in the past, performing experiments on large and small scale agricultural production. He went on to start and co-manage an organic farm as well as serving as compost specialist for a large windrow composting facility. Troy is currently the owner of Living Roots Compost Tea, consulting with growers and composters worldwide. He's also the host of What's Brewing, a compost podcast. So he is well-versed in all of these topics. So with that said, Troy, why don't you start uh, by giving us a little overview of the work that you do as an entrepreneur in composting. What is that business like and how did you get into it? Hey, so I had originally gotten into this all through taking a, I was in going back to school and took a 28 day class with 
Elaine, who at the time I didn't know who she was. This is back in 2010, 2011. And uh, through that class, you know, had an aha moment, knew that's exactly what I wanted to pursue. Um, I went to apprentice with her on the microscope because I wanted to specifically work with her on apprenticing. I had no really prior experience with the microscope. So I went to Rodale to do that and they yeah. liked me a lot and liked my work ethic and brought me on through a compost grant to work alongside her. Uh, and I just kind of went nuts from there, um, really delving into it and working. I, I was in Pennsylvania and I moved back to Tennessee and I just recently relocated. So while I was in Nashville, I started my own business, um, the Living Roots business. What I, I'd like to change names. Uh, I originally started off on a suggestion of doing compost tea sprays locally. So that's what I started off doing is compost tea sprays for landscapes, lawns, gardens, and farms, um, basically as an alternative to chemicals for people to use. Um, not that I'm really into lawns, but if people are gonna be spraying lawns or landscapes and rather than be using compost tea or something natural and organic than chemicals. So I started off doing that and then immediately my business morphed into a lot of consulting. Uh, so at this point, half of my business has been compost tea sprays and half of it's been consulting with uh, now people around the world who want to consult on compost making, compost tea, compost tea brewing, microscopy, soil food web knowledge, anything like that that has to do with soil food web, compost or soils. Uh, and then now I'm kind of morphing my business uh, because I'm in the Northeast now. I just relocated to back to Pennsylvania near Kutztown, so I'm back near Rodale. Um, and I don't really know what's gonna happen. I think I might start putting out more products. I'd kind of like to change my name. I feel like the compost tea name kind of puts me in a very small closet and uh, not many people as may, not as many people may pay attention to what's going on with what I'm doing because of that. Um, and I do a lot, whole lot more than compost tea, um, especially, you know, compost. Compost is the basis of compost tea. So I really specialize in that and soil microbiology. Fantastic. Well, look, so there is such a wide definition of compost out there. And I think this is where people get confused. And we've identified this as one of the key points that farmers are working to get better at because of how important it can be for kickstarting soil health. Um, but because there are so many different types out there, everything from hot composting methods, cold composting, and even vermicompost and bokashi, which is more of a fermentation, all get lumped into these, as well as a misunderstanding of whether or not this works as fertilizer or whether it's inoculant for microbiology into the soil that releases the nutrients and the minerals that are already in there. Can you give us an overview about these different types that I've mentioned and what some of the key importances are or differences are between them? Yeah, so um, I usually refer to compost as an inoculant or inoculum where you're going to be inoculating your soil with the biology that's contained within compost. Most people think that compost or compost tea is full of nutrients and that's what works for the plants, which is true in a way, but it's because of the microorganisms making those nutrients available. So the most nutrients in the world in soil is held in microorganisms. It's a matter of cycling those nutrients and working with nature and working with those microorganisms to get the nutrients that are contained within those microorganisms 
to plants and plants have a symbiotic relationship with these microorganisms, with bacteria and fungi, where the plants can manage their own needs. It's just a matter of getting the biology correct in the soil. So in different types of composting, you had mentioned we got vermicomposting, thermophilic composting, static composting, bokashi, which I'm not necessarily a fan of, uh, black soldier fly composting, um, anaerobic digestion. There's a lot of different things, but the key point is that microorganisms are breaking down organic matter and making these nutrients available to plants. And it's the whole kind of circle of life that happens within nature or a forest system or something like that. So um, with these different types of composts, you're gonna have varying degree, degrees of quality. Um, I focus more on aerobic composting and aerobic compost, aerobic microorganisms. Um, so with other types of anaerobic composting, you're gonna have anaerobic microorganisms that are breaking down or taking over the material, but then in the end, you still have to allow that stuff to age or cure and allow the aerobic or aerobes to come and take over and finish the compost. Um, with what I'm doing or what I'm trying to teach folks through farms or on their own home use is to try and get compost uh, it depends on, you know, your situation, but for most people, they're trying to get compost as quickly as they can, and I'm wanting them to get as much biology as they can through that compost. So what I'm teaching people, or the ones that I focus on, are going to be focusing on managing according to the biology in the compost or in that organic matter, and then trying to enhance that biology to bring about more populations and uh, break it down even more. So along those lines and what you're trying to achieve, even though there are a wide range of techniques and materials that you can use to achieve that, how do you go about assessing the health of a compost pile and assuring that it has the microbial and fungal populations that you're looking for to get the results that you can really work with and apply into your own soil? How do you analyze that through the process? Well, I'm using a microscope throughout, uh, so I'm able to take a sample and look to see, you know, do I have a diversity of bacteria? Do I have any fungi in there? What about protozoa, like different amoeba, flagellates? What am I working with? If you don't have access to a microscope, um, you're going to kind of have to basically go off of what you're seeing and smelling. So if you're seeing a good amount of breakdown, let's say you're not seeing a good amount of breakdown, let's say you're Let's say you're seeing a compost that's full of woody tissue and wood chips. Um, either it hasn't been fully composted or there's not a lot of microorganisms that are in there that you're having a lot of chunks of wood chips or maybe even other material um, that's just not getting broken down because you don't have the biology there to break it down or for some reason the way you've managed the pile um, there's not enough water or moisture to help the biology or uh, you've allowed it to get really super hot or go anaerobic to where other types of microorganisms have taken over and you're not, you're not getting a lot of good breakdown. So if you're not using a microscope, the way to, best way to judge is, you know, over two months, four months, six months, are you getting a continuous breakdown, an ice breakdown of material or is it kind of 
look about the same as it did at two months, at four months, and six months. The ways to make sure that you're keeping the biology going is you want to make sure that you're getting air in there somehow, every so often at least. And you want to make sure that you're keeping your pile moist, but not too wet. So the consistency of a wrung out sponge is the way that most people like to describe it, or 50% moisture. These microorganisms that we're working with need moisture in order to function and thrive and survive and you know, go on reproducing. So you need to provide them with the moisture. You need to make sure that your material is staying moist. But just like if you have some moisture, you know, if you water your lawn for 10 minutes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help it. But if you flood your lawn to where it's just sitting in water, that's not going to be beneficial at all. Same with compost. You know, you want some water. But if you're flooding it to where you've just got too much water and causing it to go anaerobic, that's not going to be good. But um, I always like to use a food humans preserve food through a few different ways. We use salt or we use like uh, bags or, you know, airtight containers and we dehydrate food. So the reason that we dehydrate food, like you put fruit in a dehydrator or produce in a dehydrator, you're taking away the moisture because you're want, not wanting any microorganisms or mold or bacteria to come in onto the surface of the surfaces of, you know, your banana or your mango and to break it down, you want to dry it out so that microorganisms aren't able to really uh, live on the surface there. So also, you know, we, so we dehydrate food, we put stuff in an airtight container because we don't want that air to get in there. In the opposite effect, we want to enhance these microorganisms in compost. So we need air, we need moisture. We're trying to get things to break down, unlike leaving your sandwich out or your loaf of bread out on the counter, you know, um, or, or putting it away as opposed to leaving it on the counter. I mean, because if you leave it out on the counter, your bread's going to get moldy or your sandwich is going to get moldy. We want to enhance those microorganisms that are going to break down this organic matter in compost. So uh, the, the best method that you can come about to compost to achieve that is what you're going to go for. And um, yeah, in my experience, vermicompost is a great way to provide biology and break things down or uh, thermophilic composting, different ways of thermophilic composting is a great way too. It's all in how you manage the pile though. Now you're talking a lot about getting air into the pile, anaerobically decomposing the organic matter that you're using, but there are some people who also advocate for aerobic or sorry, anaerobic, I had it the other way around. It's aerobic if it's got oxygen in it and it's anaerobic if it doesn't, right? And so anaerobic decomposition also has the potential for some benefits. I've heard it advocated by certain sources and can break down and make bioavailable some difficult minerals that otherwise aren't water soluble. Is there a use for anaerobic compost or are the negative aspects of it sort of too dangerous or kind of outweigh the benefits? Yeah, it has its place. Um, there are gigantic anaerobic digesters that people are able to turn a lot of food scraps into, I would call it a, I wouldn't call it compost, I would call it a compostable material. So you're breaking it down with these anaerobes, uh, but then that's what I was saying, you have to put it through a curing process where it's gonna age and you, you, know, you allow air into it after that anaerobic process. So 
yeah, it has its place. Um, trying to break down a lot of food scraps, it may be easier, uh, you know, because due to space in a city or something like that, it may be easier to put it through an anaerobic digester or if you're like worm composting, um, people on a large scale with doing large scale worm composting will do what's called pre-composting where they're putting something through a thermophilic phase before they feed it to worms in order to break uh, or to kill pathogens and weed seeds. Um, so using an anaerobic, if you, you know, say you don't have a lot of real estate that you can be making thermophilic windrows or piles or something like that, but you do have a small basement space or something in a warehouse or something like that, you know, you could have a anaerobic digester where you're putting it through the anaerobic digester to put it through the thermophilic process and then take that and feed it to worms. So it has its place, everything has its place. Um, it's just my preference to, to do other type of composting. Yeah, uh, I don't, it's not, I, I don't look down on those things or it's not like I think that they're bad. Everything has its place, it's just a matter of uh, your environment and what what you have to work with. And so getting rid of pathogens and especially killing weed seeds is one of the benefits of thermophilic compost, getting it up to heat so that those organisms can't thrive and that those seeds can't germinate. Are there any other ways of eliminating those risks without having to bring it up to temperature? Or is that only achieved by reaching a minimal temperature? Worms can also help to break down pathogens. Um, if the other lady was here, she might not be able to answer this question better. I know she's worked a lot with microbes. Um, I know from my experience and what I've learned that um, if you were to not have necessarily put something through the thermophilic phase, but feed it to worms, as long as worms work most of that material, they're gonna be breaking down pathogens. Um, and over time, if you have, uh, you know, like a static pot compost pile, if you're just like a backyard gardener who's throwing stuff into a heap, you know, you throw some grass in there, you throw some food scraps in there, you know, you may have some pathogens at first, but over time, as it ages and goes more aerobic, if you're able to turn it and, and work with it and manage it, you know, over a year's time, um, it should be that you're... Uh, getting rid of those, as long as you're keeping it aerobic and not too wet, you should be getting rid of those pathogens. All right, so let's go through other types of composting, starting with the fungal or the bacterial dominant types. There seems to be a lot of hype right now around fungal dominant compost and the advantages that they have for creating a forest floor-like environment in which a lot of different plants can uh, can thrive essentially. Um, first of all, I've also heard that it's not possible to create fungal dominance in compost, that that's something of a myth that it can have more fungal life, but it's unlikely to ever be dominant in comparison to the bacterial life. And second of all, uh, are there real benefits to doing it this way? Or is it just something new that we're starting to discover as we learn more about mycology? So according to research that's been done in the past uh, 10 to 20 years, um, it is beneficial to get fungi, more fungi going into your soils. 
so my over the past 10 years that I've been doing this since I worked with Elaine, my entire goal has to been get more and more fungal compost or get compost that's more and more fungal, uh, more fungi in it or fungal dominant. It can be extremely difficult. It depends on your starting materials from my experience. So I worked with a guy, consulted with a guy who was getting a lot of material from um, large old forests in California. He, he somehow was able to get um, wood chips that they were cutting down like these super old trees in a national forest. And he was composting that with palm leaves and then feeding it to worms. So these huge old trees were full of fungi because fungi is not just in the soil, but it's within tree, um, the architecture of the tree or the body of the tree. And sorry, there's like a wasp or something. Um, and on the surfaces of the outside, so on the foliage. Uh, so he's getting this material that's already full of fungi, composting it and feeding it to worms. So he's got a very fungal dominant material to start with. And so when you look at his stuff underneath the, under the microscope, um, it's definitely fungal dominant. Uh, David, Dr. David Johnson, who he and his partner or wife uh, do the Johnson Sioux um, bioreactor, I think is what they call it. Uh, they have a certain method of composting and he's shown that he can get fungal dominance through making compost this way. You can find a video on YouTube if you wanna look it up after this uh, session. Um, but he's found that you can apply this compost that he's made that has become fungal dominant at a rate of one ton per acre, which is barely anything. If you can think of one ton or like basically a couple cubic yards of compost onto one acre, and he's been able to change the biology in the soil and advance it in succession um, to where he's getting more fungi. And he's using, again, so that he, you would be considering that compost an inoculant. You're inoculating the soil with compost in order to get these microorganisms into the soil. So uh, yeah, and then you had Elaine on. I don't know how much she talked about succession, but uh, in plant succession, if you were to go out and disturb soil through tilling or just uh, taking away the vegetation on something, you would be making that soil bacterial dominant. And then as uh, you start, you're gonna start out with some pioneer weeds that come up there. And then if you continue to let vegetation grow and not disrupt it, you're gonna move through succession from pioneer weeds to grasses, to shrubs, to trees, to forests. And as you're moving through succession, you're going from bacterial dominant soils to equal ratio of bacteria to fungi to forest systems where, which are going to be fungal dominant. So what are people are trying to achieve through this method is to get more fungi in the soil to a place where the biology is correct uh, as to the kind of crops that you're crop or crops that you're growing. Did that answer your question fully? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good start. Well, let's go a little deeper into that now. Uh, there's the idea that certain types of compost might be better for certain types of crops or for certain types of growing methods. Since you've worked with growers in many different places, have you found that there is any noticeable difference in the type of composting method used for things like market gardens or for tree planting efforts or for broad scale applications that are significantly better than others? 
Um, I'm trying to clarify that I have your question correct. You're asking that, uh, are there certain types of composting, like is, is thermophilic windrow composting better at producing compost for a certain type of crop than like vermicompost? Is that what you're trying to ask? Yes, exactly. If there's tailored types of composting that are better or worse for certain types of growing or certain types of crops. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the type of composting as much as the quality, um, but you're going to have certain types of methods or ways of management that are going to produce better biology in your compost. So um, the Johnson Sioux bioreactor, they've come up with a way that uh, they're able to really enhance the biology and get a lot more fungi going. Or um, I found, uh, I really wasn't a fan of aerated static piles at first. And then when I was able to control the feedstocks on my own and practice it on my own scale and at home, I was getting extremely good biology. Um, and like I said, vermicompost is normally gonna give you really good biology. So most vermicompost is gonna be more bacterial dominant than fungal dominant. So this is kind of a weird situation too though, because uh, people have found that vermicompost is great for grapes and grapes should have more uh, fungi in the soil or equal amount fung fungal to bacterial ratio. Um, but people have a, great um, success with using vermicompost on different uh, vineyards. I could, I could, that could be like a long drawn out answer <laughs> as far yeah, as like be what you're trying to get to. But um, yeah, really uh, it's the management of any of the types of composting that you're doing. It's the management of it, of paying attention to biology or knowing when to like add air or turn it, turn a pile or things like that in order to focus on good biology and beneficial biology. But yeah, so like uh, from the experience and research that's been done, like the David, jo the Johnson Sioux bioreactor, that type of fungal dominant compost should be better for, you know, more tree crops um, or most any soil is gonna be lacking fungi. So, um, Anytime you can get compost that's more fungal dominant to try and you're trying to balance out a soil. So you're trying to add fungi to the soil. So most any soil is going to need more fungi, basically, no matter what crop you're doing, as long as it's not, you know, just like lettuce or some early succession crop. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And that makes me wonder what your experience and relationship with using Bokashi is, because it's kind of an outlier in the composting world. It often gets lumped in with composting methods, but technically it's a type of fermentation that is often used more as a fertilizer rather than a bacterial rich compost as we normally think about it. Would you include that in the list of composting methods or does it really stand alone as a separate type of soil improvement and fertilizer? I would consider it part of a composting method. Um, so I know people take Bokashi and put it directly onto plants and have some results. What I'm trying to do through making compost is get a diversity of microorganisms. So by using a diversity of materials as feedstocks and starting materials, 
you know, a piece of hay, certain type of hay is going to have certain bacteria and protozoa on it where, um, you know, wood chips and things like that are going to have other types of bacteria and fungi on it. So you put those together and you're going to get more diversity. With Bokashi, um, I went to the NC State Vermiculture Conference in 2019 and there was a guy there named Zach, Dr. Zach something uh, from the Rocky Mountain Soil Institute is what I think he calls it. He has a DNA sequencer and he had done DNA sequencing on compost tea, vermicompost, bokashi, and like one other thing. And so like compost tea, he did DNA sequencing and it was just like tons of different DNA, just all kinds of like a super big diversity of microorganisms. With bokashi, it was 99% bacillus. So you're pretty much getting all of the same type of bacteria in Bokashi, whereas I'm trying to get, like I said, I'm trying to get a diversity of species. So if you use, you know, if you're an apartment dweller who um, chooses not to have like an indoor worm bin or you want to do Bokashi, it can be a good way to break down food scraps before, you know, like feeding, you could do Bokashi and then put that into an outdoor compost pile or do bokashi and then put that, feed that to worms. I would consider it like a, another type of kind of pre-composting or breaking stuff down in order to get it ready for uh, composting that's gonna make it healthy, full of healthy aerobic microorganisms. Well, so we were talking a second ago about the feed materials for compost and how that can contribute to the diversity of microorganisms and fungi that are in there. Let's go over some of the common feed and materials that are used for composting and what they can help to promote and some that are either overrated or downright incorrect or often troublesome in composting piles. Maybe starting with your carbon sources and di dividing them between the carbon and the nitrogen sources. Yeah, so carbon sources, you, can, you have browns and you have greens. I think most people are familiar with both of these terms. The greens are going to be more nitrogenous materials, where the browns are going to be more carbonaceous materials. So brown or carbon material is going to be wood chips, stalks, sticks, paper, cardboard, sawdust, uh, anything that's woody, got a lot of carbon, lignin, um, something that's going to be harder to break down. Uh, that's going to be a carbon source. Whereas green material is gonna be anything that's easier to break down or anything that's cut green or even food scraps. So grass, um, green leaves, not dead leaves in the fall or uh, autumn, but uh, green leaves, weeds. Um, so straw and hay are the exact same plant. Hay is cut when it's green, straw is cut when it's brown but it's the exact same plant. So if you cut it green and it's hay, that would be considered a green source. Whereas you cut it brown and all the protein sugars and carbohydrates have gone seeped into the roots for the, for the season, that's gonna be considered a brown source. So straw, brown, hay, green. Um, we were kind of talking about succession before and bacteria and fungi. So green material is gonna be more of a bacterial food and brown 
or carbonaceous material is going to be more of a fungal food. So if you're trying to get more fungi into a pile, you'd want to have, you know, over 50% or majority brown material. Uh, there is a point where you can get, you know, too much brown material. I would say the threshold that I've experienced is somewhere around, you know, 75 or 80% brown to the rest uh, green, either nitrogen or high nitrogen. Um, you, you can also have too much nitrogen. So I was working with one farm and they couldn't get their piles to heat up. And I was suggesting they had some odd starting materials and I wasn't really, couldn't really figure out what their issue was. And they ended up sending in a test, a chemical analysis, and they realized they had too much nitrogen. Um, so they actually had to get more carbon into the compost to get it to heat up. And generally when you're trying to do thermophilic compost and not getting temperatures or not, you're not getting the thermophilic temperatures that you want, you generally want to add more nitrogen or a high nitrogen source, which would be a manure or a leguminous plant or alfalfa. Um, was there any other part of that question I didn't answer? No, no, those are really good start. And those are the common ones that people are from working with. Uh, let's talk a little bit about wood sources, wood chips specifically, and the difference between coniferous trees and deciduous trees, that kind of wood can make a difference. Uh, how big or small the pieces are can determine how quickly it breaks down. And also the types of microbial life or fungal life that it promotes as well as, I mean, so we're just kind of generally talking about wood sources here, but also the concern that it can absorb or extract nutrients from the soil if it's not properly broken down. Can you kind of just talk about that as a material and how it fits into healthy, sort of robust and diverse compost? Yeah. First you mentioned um, like the particle size. So I generally tell people to stick with material that's like, like if you're gonna go with wood chips, something that's two to three inches or smaller, nothing too bigger than that, because we do need some fluff in a compost pile, something that's gonna be porous and allow for air movement throughout the pile. Um, I, while we're on the subject, I'm gonna mention sawdust. Um, a little bit of sawdust is good. What's really weird about sawdust is it has an extremely high carbon to nitrogen ratio. So you would think that sawdust, it's like more broken down, it'd be easier to break down, but because it has such a, once you turn it into sawdust, it creates such a high carbon to nitrogen ratio, it's actually harder, it takes longer to break down. Plus, um, I just talked about the breathability. And if, you're, if you've got a lot of small material, like some coffee grounds are good, but you wouldn't want to load a pile down with something like coffee grounds or sawdust because you know, like, you buy a bag of flour, think of how much air is going to flow through that material because it's such small particle size. So you want chunky stuff, you want fluff, you want a variety and diversity of material sizes to begin with as well. So from, you know, tiny to, you know, two to three inches is about what I stick with. Um, you know, and if you're throwing sticks and stalks in there that are longer, if you're turning this stuff by hand, it can be really difficult to like hit some pieces of material that are like two feet long and then it's like catching all this other material and you're having to lift like 50 pounds at once that can be really difficult when you're doing it by hand yeah that was a mistake um, I made in my early days <laughs> yeah yeah it sticks in your pitchfork and makes it such a hassle 
Um, I, so as far as like the putting wood chips into, I think that it's been talked about a lot now that you don't want to be putting wood chips directly into soil or mixing wood chips into soil. And most people are worried about the, um, it robbing the soil of nitrogen and you're trying to put fresh plants in there that need this nitrogen. Uh, people have had luck by putting in wood chips or adding wood chips uh, to certain things, but then also adding like a bone or blood meal so that they're adding a high nitrogen source um, to make up for the nitrogen that's taken up. So uh, I don't have a chemistry background. Again, this might be a better question for um, the, the, the lady who was going to be here. Um, my, my understanding would be that even though wood chips are more of a fungal food, you're going to be having bacteria that's coming in to you've got a lot of sap and sugary stuff that are going to be on the wood chips. So right at first, for the first month or so, you're going to be having bacteria that are going to be grabbing onto those wood chips and eating away at the sugars and the saps and things like that. I believe that that's why, because this bacteria is going to be where your source of nitrogen, like I said in the beginning of our conversation, the nutrients are held within these microorganisms. Charles is here now, I see. Um, the... Uh, nutrients are going to be held in within these microorganisms. So if you've got all this bacteria that's migrating to the wood chips to break down these sugar sources and saps and things like that, then they're going to be taking away from nitrogen that you might have for plants. So that's my understanding of that. Um, I think I answered all the, all the parts of your question there. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good breakdown. I really appreciate it. And let me just introduce Charles since he was got here. And thanks for holding down the fort until now, Troy. Uh, hey, Charles, how's it going? I'm really glad you're able to make it. I hope he can hear us. If you want, I could field another question until he gets uh, online here. Well, let me quickly give his introduction because I have a feeling he'll be available in just a second. Uh, so for anybody who doesn't know Charles Dowding, since 1982, Charles has created and cropped four no-dig market gardens on different soils, from stone to silt to clay. And in the 1980s, he cropped 7.5 acres, which is three hectares of no dig beds. Currently, he grows vegetables on a third of an acre in Somerset in Southwest England, which is zone eight on your frost zones. And he also sells 20,000 pounds, uh, pounds being the British currency, not the weight unit of harvest locally. Mainly in salad leaves and many vegetables are served on the courses at Home Acres, his farm. Charles' methods are easy to understand and work on small areas as well as large ones. He has written 10 books and an annual calendar of sowing dates. He runs a YouTube channel and writes for national gardening magazines and gives talks and courses at home and abroad. Charles, have we got you here now? All right, I'll leave that in Nick's hands for just a minute. Um, let's continue with what we were talking about materials for compost because we've mentioned the main ingredients, your carbon and your nitrogen sources, but there's a lot of talk about other inoculants that can help to accelerate or increase the diversity of the bacteria or the fungal populations, things like essential microbes, EMs, uh, biochar, rock dust, and so many others. Can you talk a little bit about your own experience and the use of those in your own compost production? Yeah, um, I don't use any of those things. <laughs> Uh, I'm not really a fan of the EM. Um, really, 
if you're wanting to feed microorganisms in a compost pile, you could just use the same types of things that like I would use for a compost tea. So like kelp or fish hydrolysate, um, maybe a little tiny bit of uh, uh, unsulfured molasses, blackstrap molasses. So mix something up in a watering can and water it down. A lot of times I'll, what I do is I'll make a compost tea and I'll have extra compost tea either uh, full strength or diluted and I'll dump that onto my compost pile and I've noticed that it um, breaks down even faster over time. So uh, you've got a lot of bacteria and fungi that are floating in the air that you know just by having your compost pile exposed to the air are going to bring in more microorganisms to help break things down. Um, the best thing the best suggestion that I can give anybody, um, I don't know why I didn't think this right away because it's always my go-to for giving a suggestion, uh, is to get a forest, what I call a forest soil inoculant. Uh, and this is one of the first things that Elaine taught me that when weeded out at Rodale, um, go out to your nearest forest or woods. Um, if it's a park, you know, you're not supposed to be doing it necessarily, but uh, if you can go out your back door or know someone that has a woods nearby, go and find some leaves and look underneath the leaves for some mycelium, which are going to be like white strands on the leaves or on the sticks or on the, on the surface of the soil. This is going to be saprophytic fungi that you know is native and breaks down things and works in your environment. Um, and take some, you know, take a couple handfuls from this area and then go somewhere else close by in the forest and look for some more, you know, leaves with mycelium. I'll, I'll grab some leaves, I'll grab some sticks. This, all of these things that we're working with are microscopic. So a lot of this mycelium, you're not even gonna see. What you're seeing is a buildup of the mycelium that it's been there so much and overlapped and overlapped that you're able to see it with your naked eye, but it's come up from the soil from the forest floor. So by grabbing a little bit of this soil, grabbing some leaves, grabbing some sticks, you're creating an inoculant of native microorganisms, but especially native saprophytic fungi and saprophytic fungi is what breaks down dead or decaying woody tissue. So by inoculating your compost pile or whatever it is with this, even a worm bin, you're helping to add microorganisms that are gonna break down woody tissue, especially but work in your environment and you know that's gonna survive in your environment. Nice. Uh, I'm going to quickly cut to Charles now. Can you hear us all right, Charles? Yes, I can, Oliver. Sorry for being late. <laughs> no problem. I'm really glad that you're here. It's great for you to join us. And we were just talking right now about outside inoculants for compost. Now, I'm pretty familiar with your composting method. You've got great resources out there and videos on how you do it, as well as the materials that you gather. And Troy was just talking about the inoculants like mm, saprum saprophytic fungi from samples of soil from no nearby forests that are already established. Do you use any other inoculants, things like perhaps biochar or rock dust or really anything else that isn't normally the materials that you use as the bulk of your compost and seen good results with them? <laughs> kind of. Um, it's question a little bit of how, how you measure results, I feel. And I, I find it very difficult in, in quite a general way to assess the effectiveness of many of the methods I use because I'm doing quite a few different things always. I want 
for my garden to flourish in the best possible way. So I'm never going to do just one thing. And just, I'm interested you mentioned rock dust actually there, because I've never thought of it in terms of um, an inoculant, if you like, biological quality, but maybe it does. And I do add it. <laughs> That's why I'm interested actually, uh, because I feel it does have to bring something, but I would put it more in energy terms. Um, I get a bit, go a bit off the scale because it's nothing I could measure, but I feel there's a lot we can learn from energy gardening like biodynamics and, well, I call it energy gardening, uh, Schauberger. You know, going back to some of Schauberger's early discoveries in Austria, where he found a farmer stirring water and singing. And his version of, therefore, his version of the biodynamics, which came later, this was in about 1910, uh, Schauberger found that, it preceded Steiner's work. Um, but I think Steiner based his work on this kind of thing. Um, but basically, this guy was was energizing the water somehow with with his sound. You know, who, who does that anymore? How, how much do we, or rather, how little do we know about that? I think there's huge frontiers here of stuff to discover. And, and currently, it is quite topical to talk about the, the biology, which is fantastic because it wasn't for a long time. But I, I'm actually very interested in the energy, shall we say? I'm sorry that, if that sounds vague, by the way. It's, it's stuff you can't measure, really. No, not at all. And it is important as we continue to learn more about these frontiers of plant health and especially soil biology that mm. only just a few years ago were either immeasurable or we had no idea what we were looking for. And That's I think true. being open-minded and creative about the influences on the health of the biology and the entire ecosystem in our growing environments is really important. Um, so I'll, I'll throw another question at you, since we've covered a lot about composting methods, different types, and what it is you're looking for, how to analyze its effectiveness with Troy already. Can you tell me about, in, in terms of creating healthy compost for your garden, what are some of the troubleshooting things that you often work with with your clients or other people that you consult with or teach that are very common mistakes that you see repeated over and over again? that are easy to avoid. What are some of the things that, you know, you can give us some advice on to avoid those pitfalls? <laughs> Possibly the biggest one is moisture content, um, which is so hard again to describe because it's so variable. And I, I, from my experience, a lot of people get their compost too wet. And I actually went on a compost making course about four years ago now. Um, the American guy, God, I can't remember his name, but a bit that, that his advice was a bit oriented towards a drier climate than we have here in the UK. And he was talking about whenever you add something to your compost, you add some water, which seemed appropriate to him based on his experience, I guess. And, and when I tried that, I returned to my farm, it didn't, it just got too soggy. And anyway, since then, I've, I've added the roof to my compost making area, and that's just made the world of difference. Getting the moisture level right, not too soggy. It's very rare in, in a temperate climate, I feel that you need to add water. And that's partly because every green leaf you add contains moisture already and that comes out in the composting process. Um, so it's air. I think air is the most common thing that people struggle with, getting enough air in their compost heap. But then they, they come to believe that two mistaken things. One is they, they believe, because they've been told that air somehow flows in through slatted sides. I think that's total nonsense. You know, it doesn't, if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense. It means your heat is always going to cool down. It's going to dry out, blah, blah, blah. Solid sides are best. They contain the air and um, warmth that's already in there. You get the air level right by adding enough woody matter. And the woody matter is brilliant for bringing in the fungi that you've already been discussing. And that's 
the thing that's made a huge difference to me is adding more wood since I bought a shredder in um, 2016 and we take green wood from the hedgerows um, spare branches of elder and that kind of thing and since doing that I've noticed a big increase of mushrooms growing in my beds and sometimes when we're planting or quite often actually we find the soil has almost turned white in places it's <laughs> quite dramatic but plants love it and they're all growing really well so um, putting more wood in is another thing people are afraid of that I think a bit um, but you just getting that balance right. Uh, you know, the older I get, the more I realise that composting is, is an art as well as a science and, and takes a lot of practice to get good at. But one of the other thing I noticed, and it's one of the reasons I was keen to join this evening, is how people's eyes light up when you get get them near a compost heap. And, and it's a process that um, draws the imagination of many, many people. So it's something that is great to talk about. Awesome. I'm going to throw it back to Troy. Do you have anything to add to that of troubleshooting compost piles and figuring out the things that most people get wrong and are easy to avoid? The number one thing that I run across with people is um, generally a lot of people are trying to compost food scraps. And like Charles mentioned, a lot of what he was talking about echoes what I was saying. Um, but yeah, they're not getting enough brown material in there. They're adding too much green and not enough brown. So uh, if you've got some type of food scrap composting that you're doing uh, or worm with a worm bin, especially if you're adding green material in, you want to add just as much brown material, if not twice as much brown material. So a one to one ratio or a one to two green to brown. Can I add to that as well? Um, the common um, misconceptions about, is this okay to speak? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, they've been told they've been told so much faulty information like that you cannot compost uh say roots of perennial weeds we compost all of them at the moment we're composting huge amounts of bindweed roots for example um we compost blighted leaves late blight on tomato and potato it's totally fine to put them in the compost people have been made fearful and and they're not embracing the full joy of the process i feel <laughs> that you can pretty much compost anything yeah, nice. That, that gives a little bit of inspiration there. And so before we move into the listener question portion, I want to ask one more question, which is, what is some of the advice that you would give for people who are just starting out? And we covered a lot of different types of materials and techniques for composting. But if you want to have success early on, which is often really key to encouraging people to dig further in and increase their knowledge and keep trying and experimenting, what would you recommend that they start by doing to get that early win and continue forward? Charles? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, start small. and uh, Don't make too big a heap. Uh, you, you, you need to accept that you need a lot of material to fill a heap of any size. And so you're going to score results with, with a small heap, which will fill reasonably quickly. Um, it may or may not get hot. That's a key understanding. Heat is not vital to make great compost. That would just happen more quickly if you get it hot but you start small and 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 then that, that will get your hand in and also don't underestimate how much material you need to to make good compost um, because you do adding it more quickly with a decent amount will give you a, a faster and more interesting result there's no doubt about that Troy, you want to give your answer to that question sure yeah I, did you see that adrian's on here now i did yes Okay. I'll, I'll go to her in just a second. Uh, there's so many. <laughs> I would, I would uh, encourage people to get into worm composting. Um, other than that, 
kind of like Charles mentioned a couple minutes ago, um, making sure that your moisture is correct. Really, so most people that I know that are really just getting into composting are usually getting doing something in their backyard where they're mowing their lawn and they're throwing that in a pile and then raking up their leaves in the autumn and throwing that in a pile. So really just uh, the two most basic things that uh, work and when especially, you know, I'm talking about microorganisms is air and water, just like Charles had mentioned. So we want to make sure that you're getting air in there sometime, you know, by at least turning it once a month, if it's just kind of a static pile, uh, making sure that it's not getting too wet by uh, having it just getting rained on um, or too dry. Like uh, Charles mentioned, having a roof over the compost pile. Um, it's great to have things, especially in the summertime or very hot climate, it's really good to keep things from getting dried out and to make sure and keep them moist. So. Yeah, just the two most essential things are air and moisture. Troy, can I take you up on something there, which is, um, I don't agree actually that you need to turn it once a month. I mean, you kind of threw that one out a bit, but I would say that I wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that's obligatory because it's something I come across a lot. They feel bad if they're not turning their heat. And I'm always trying to make people feel good about it. And, you know, it, much as that might give a nice result, it's not obligatory. I'm sure you didn't mean that. Yeah, I was just throwing a number out there. Uh, I meant, you know, every so often you want to be adding air. I would say, you know, like if you're checking on it and having a relationship with it, um, if you're smelling something funky, then you want to make sure and turn it. But yeah, Charles is totally correct. I was just throwing a number out there of once a month. That's not necessarily, you know, like, yeah. and that's absolutely correct. Like, I don't want to discourage anyone from feeling guilty about their compost pile. Yeah, and you know they do though. It's I don't know they they you know they hate to feel they're doing something wrong. I find I have to be really careful what I say. I always try to keep it as simple as possible so they really grasp the simplicity of the process. And and I find actually one turn is, is recommended. But I always say you know you don't have to because <laughs> some people then they feel bad if they don't even manage one turn. But one turn I feel, I feel does give great value. And and I like the phrase you know you know the phrase law of diminishing returns. Because I feel that, that that applies anywhere. If you turn it more than once, you, you're not going to get a huge value from that in proportion to the very first turn that you make. For us, that, that makes a huge difference because it improves the quality and evenness and speeds up the final spreading, actually, as well. So we kind of get a return on and time invested in the one turn. That's how I look at it. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm glad that you mentioned that. But yeah, uh, so generally when I'm making a compost pile, I may be making layers of you know, a couple inches of this and a couple inches of that. And you absolutely need at least one turn to incorporate all that material to get it to touching up against each other. So you don't want all straw touching against each other. You want straw and leaves and manure and food scraps so that um, that's kind of what activates that biology and gets it going, uh, like Charles was mentioning, so for a, a more rapid breakdown. There you have it. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experience perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. It'll always be free to join. All you have to do is follow the links to our Discord on the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website. The benefit of joining through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms to sell you more junk, 
I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. Now this week's question, which we'll be discussing on the forum is, are you having difficulty getting the results that you want from your compost piles? Are you doubtful that you are achieving the levels of fungal and bacterial life that you're hoping for? Now though I've done many interviews on soil health and composting methods in the past, it's something that I'll continue to dig into and learn more about because of just how important it is to the restoration of our soil and the holistic health of the entire farm ecology. Now don't forget, you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests on the Discord forum too. Now that's our show for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.